Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Okay, if I just pull the tail down a little more. Uh, but now the right front paw popped back up. Just, I gotta tuck that back into place. Uh, there. Hey, lady, what are you doing to my cab? Oh, hey, yeah, I, I skinned this large wolverine and I stretched the hide and fur across the body of your cab. Thank goodness you have one of those little Nissans. Still, it was almost impossible. Why you want to do such a thing? I know, it's great, isn't it? Don't you love the way your on-duty light comes up through the open jaws and razor-sharp teeth of the wolverine? So cool. I pick up all kinds of fares. You think some old lady on the Upper East Side is going to get in a cab that looks like a monster? Oh, it's not a monster, sir, but one of the sacred beings of the Earth, taxes. Taxidermy celebrates nature. What? Celebrates nature? Taxidermy. Lady, you understand that word got nothing to do with taxi cabs, right? It's not about putting dead animals on taxis. It's not? No. I only read the first chapter of the book and then I got really excited and I wanted to try it. And now I got a freaking nectarine on my ride. Wolverine. Hugh Jackman? Yeah, I had him in my cab last fall. Nice guy. Good tipper. What's that got to do with that dead thing on my freaking roof? Maybe we should listen to this show about the history and art of taxidermy. And now he wants to know, when they stuff a unicorn, who gets to keep the meat? Colin McEnroe. Actually, one thing we'll be covering is the fact that it really you can't really use the word stuff. At least taxidermists don't really like the word stuff for reasons that will be elaborated. It's just hard not to because we're so used to it. Um, so uh, let me tell you a little bit about today's show. It is our sort of salute to, to taxidermy, old and new. Uh, traditional and non-traditional, shall we say. Uh, so in a little a little while, you're going to meet James Prosek. He's a Connecticut-based artist who's working with uh, what's sometimes called rogue taxidermy in art. In other words, he's using taxidermy, but maybe not the way a naturalist would. Uh, also, in just a few minutes, you're going to meet Glenn, Glenn Barber. He runs Outdoor Artistry Taxidermy and Bait in Winstead. We thought we should talk to a straight-up, straight-ahead taxidermist from around these parts. But to kick things off, uh, you're going to talk to and hear from Robert Marbury. He's the co-founder of the Minnesota Association of Rogue Taxidermists, to which I'm sure most of you belong, although you may have let, let your dues lapse. Huh? And he's the author of Taxidermy Art, A Rogue's Guide to the Work, the Culture, and How to Do It Yourself, which will be out October 7th. Pre-order it now. Uh, and Rachel Poliquin. Her book is out. It's the, um, the Breathless Zoo, Taxidermy, and the Cultures of Longing. And you can see more of her work at ravishingbeasts.com. She's joining us uh, from the CBC studios in Vancouver, British Columbia, where there's lots of things to taxidermy. Many strange creatures uh, in uh, British Columbia. Uh, I'm going to begin with both of them, and then we'll, we'll have a quick uh, meeting with Glenn Barber. But um, Robert Mar- Marbury, I'm going to start with you. One of the things that you've uh, said to us in preparation for this show is that you think taxidermy uh, is having a moment. In just a second, we'll talk to Rachel about some of the other moments that taxidermy has had. Uh, but why, why, first of all, how do you see that manifesting itself, taxidermy having a moment? And to what do you attribute said moment? Um, well, thanks. Uh, there's, there's actually seems to be quite a few reasons why to now is uh, identified as a, being a moment for taxidermy. Um, I, I think that the social media is definitely plays the major major role because you can now 
take pictures of something you're working on and that gets shot all around the world. Um, Instagram's a perfect example. I mean, you can go on there and do hashtag taxidermy or hashtag rogue taxidermy or hashtag any, anything sort of in the, in the realm of taxidermy and you're going to find an enormous amount. So uh, you've got sort of a, a place that people can show off their work, but then you're also having a lot more classes, hands-on classes that are, that are popping up uh, at oddity shops, at, at museums, natural history museums, at uh, galleries. And so people are getting the opportunity to do a little bit more hands-on as well. And so I think what you're suggesting here a little bit is, you know, in a world, in a modern world, I sound like a movie trailer, in a world yeah. that prizes artisanal activities, you know, why have a mass-produced pickle when you can have a pickle that somebody worked for a year and a half to produce, uh, you know, with the sweat of his or her own hands uh, in the pickle brine? Um, there, there's something that uh, about taxidermy that fits into that, right? It's hands-on. Sure. It's a little retro. I don't know whether Brooklyn hipsters are doing taxidermy, but it seems to fit the ethos a little bit, right? Yeah, well, there's definitely a, there's a pretty steady class in the Gowanus uh, at the Morbid Anatomy Museum that, that's pretty standard. There's a, quite a few uh, people that teach there, and their their classes are totally full. So yes, you've got the the Brooklyn uh, population is definitely doing taxidermy. In fact, we do the uh, Brooklyn taxidermy competition every year. Um, in the, usually in the winter, um, and this year we had I think 400 people show up and about 40 people present work that they either collected or that they made. Um, and yes, in the artisanal, I mean, there's this the sense of the aura of the object and people responding to mass-produced objects and wanting to have an experience um, and and have a piece that is is uniquely theirs. Now it's of course not uniquely theirs; it's a dead animal, but um, definitely there's this desire to also be in touch with the rural, I think especially when you're living in the city. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of people, this taxidermy ends up being this sort of um, uh, back-to-nature kind of Boy Scouty thing that people can access within the urban environment. So instead of farm-to-table, it's forest-to-glass case. Uh, and yeah. Yeah, I think on the next season of Girls, Marnie gets really into taxidermy and uh, mounts a, a lemur. Um, let's talk to uh, Rachel Poliquin also about this. Uh, her beautiful and interesting book is uh, The Breathless Zoo, Taxidermy and the Cultures of Longing. We're going to talk uh, as we go along about what she means by longing, and it turns out that she, she does mean many things. But um, Rachel Poliquin, you hear Robert Marbury talking about this moment that taxidermy is having. One of the things your book tries to do is to taxidermically preserve other moments that taxidermy has had. Um, and, and these, well, actually, I'll, I'll let you pick a, pick a couple of historical moments where, uh, where taxidermy seemed to be uh, very, very uh, urgently needed and prized. Uh, yeah, well, I think taxidermy's first moment and really the origins of taxidermy come from that post-Columbus age of wonder, when people were setting out around the world and discovering new lands, which, of course, were inhabited with all new creatures. And in that era, you didn't have uh, a video camera or a camera or any other way to document this strange and curious creature that you might have found except to kill it and bring it home. Um, and, of course, they tried. Yes. Yeah, go, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Keep going. 
Oh, and uh, so that kind of age of wonder, in some ways they were they were preserving the experience of wonder as much as the creature. And they often tried to bring them home alive. But of course, three months on board uh, a, a ship with no idea of what the animal needed to eat, they generally died. And it was this incredibly bad taxidermy right at the beginning. But that was really the origins of trying to trying to preserve this this exotic, wondrous, never seen before creature. Yeah, we, you should say a little bit more about bad taxidermy in that time. Because, first of all, what, what we're talking about here, and I think it's a hard thing for people to wrap their minds around, although I think you just did a wonderful job of trying to lay this out, is, you know, often people, the only representation of said animal that anybody in the old world was ever going to see was this taxidermied version of it. Uh, there just w- wasn't any other. If you were going to look at a Virginia bobcat, that's that's how you were going to see it. There wasn't any other way. There weren't any other w- ways to sort of create that image. And and so um, sometimes, Rachel, people would be uh, mounting or I don't know whether... Can you use taxidermy as a verb? I just did it a couple of times. Do people do that? I, I do it all the time. All right. Yeah, so go, pe- go pe- for it. So people would taxidermy an animal which the taxidermist himself had actually never seen alive. So tell the story of the two ocelots. Oh, well, that's, that's a great story where... Um, this this taxidermist was presented with a skin and had never had never seen it alive and just did their best but i think i think part of that early taxidermy and why it was always so crusty and and malformed is it comes back to what you opened the show with about the word stuffed mm. and back in the day these skins which were were often themselves just um, malformed and badly cut from the animal would literally be stuffed full of straw um, or any kind of soft material. And so the the end form was just this bloated bag, essentially, which is why most uh, modern taxidermists prefer the term mounted, which comes uh, from creating this perfect internal sculpture, which the skin is then mounted over top, which allows you to give all sorts of uh, sense of uh, action and musculature as opposed to this bloated bag. And then with the poor ocelots, uh, no one could really figure out how to preserve that very soft skin of an animal's nose or around their eyes. And so that skin would just just uh, continuously dry and and um, contract and shrink and just give most of these early animals just a horrible death grimace. Yeah, so, um, and part of the problem, though, you have the picture of these two ocelots, one of them uh, done in, in a very bad way, in malformed ways, or whatever it was, that you, the way that you just described it, uh, and the other one was done by somebody really carefully working from, from I think, natural photographs, done a little bit later in time where there was a chance to sort of really figure out what this ocelot looked like when it was ambling around. And, you know, Robert Marbury, as we go along, we'll be talking in a few minutes about rogue taxidermy and uh, to whatever degree it represents certain kinds of embellishments and modifications. Uh, But really, there is an art to begin with, with just getting the ocelot right, not having the ocelot look like an ocelot never looked in its life, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's there's uh, there is a discussion that, that often comes up: is is uh, taxidermy a craft? Is it an art? Um, and through the history, uh, there are different people who sort of identify with being a naturalist, a scientist, um, uh, and and then some that really consider themselves artists. Uh, I don't think I'm trying to make the distinction with rogue taxidermy that you know these guys are different and that this is brand new. There's definitely a history to um, alternative taxidermy or taxidermy that was trying to create more of a narrative than represent animals 
as an archetype. And so, um, you know, definitely there are a lot of the scientists were incredible artists who could uh, properly visualize what an animal looked like in flight or running. And, and that's a, a incredible skill. And it, it takes a lot of patience and a lot of um, ability to see. Let's, uh, we, we did want to visit. First of all, let me just give out our phone number. We're live here in the afternoon, uh, except those of us who are mounted. Uh, but most of us are live here in the afternoon. You can call 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266, with any question or comment about taxidermy. But I'm especially keen to hear from the following. And this is something that does, in fact, come up in Rachel Poliquin's book. But I'm especially keen to hear from anybody who did ever have one of their own pets mounted or taxidermically preserved, uh, however we're going to put it. Actually, one of the ways that I discovered this particular distinction uh, is that I spent a a joyous and blissful afternoon many years ago with Roy Rogers. And Roy Rogers was especially insistent uh, on it being understood that Trigger, uh, his horse, uh, had been mounted, not stuffed. Everybody seemed to know that Trigger had been that something had happened to Trigger anyway, uh, and he, he wanted uh, everyone to know that the correct term was mounted. So, uh, But we thought it would be good, as we say, to go to the front lines of taxidermy, uh, talk to one of our uh, Connecticut taxidermists. So here's our conversation. As we go along here today, we're going to talk about the history of taxidermy. We're going to talk to you about people who do rogue taxidermy as art. But just for starters, I, mean, I think we really need to talk to one of the guys on the front lines of taxidermy. So Glenn Barber's joining us. He runs Outdoor Artistry Taxidermy and Bait in Winstead. First of all, Glenn Barber, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. And you've been doing this for 21 years? Yes. How do you learn? How does, how does somebody learn how to be a taxidermist? Um, I went to school for about five and a half years for it off and on. And then we also took a wood carving course for uh, decoys. And so what kinds of animals are you typically working with? Um, right now I do a lot of fish, deer, small game. I do a lot of skunks for a major outdoor retail outlet. So this is a, a major outdoor retail outlet that wants taxidermied skunks like sort of as part of its displays and stuff? Yeah, they decorate their whole stores with it. Huh. How's the business these days? In other words, is, are there as many clients as there ever were for taxidermy? It's a little slower now than it used to be, but I still can't advertise. When I advertise too much, it just gets too busy, and I'm the only one that does it. I do it full-time. A lot of people do it part-time. You know, when you call the tax service, they're usually two years backed up. They don't do it part-time, and I'm here every single day doing this. Actually, I wanted to just also go over um, the terms of art here in taxidermy, because I've heard people express a distinction in the past between stuffed and mounted. Is there some significant distinction? I mean, or is one of those terms a term that real taxidermists don't even use? They don't use the term stuffed anymore. They use mounted because it's actually on a mount. It's on a form. Uh, Years ago, they used to stuff it with plaster Paris or wood wool, and they just don't do anything like that anymore. So when I see anything now that's taxidermied, any kind of exhibit that's taxidermied, any kind of display of an animal that's taxidermied, what I'm looking at then is the skin, the hide and fur and feathers or whatever of that animal stretched out across some kind of mold? Yes. The word taxidermy means, taxi means move and dermy means skin. So you're actually moving the skin around to get it to fit the mold. And what's the mold made out of now? Uh, most of them are polyurethane foam. So typically, maybe there's no pat answer or set answer to this, but if you're going to mount an animal, how has it died typically? Through gunshot or through, could be oh, any yeah. number of means? Um, most people, you know, I mean, I, I do their trophies, so it's whatever they're hunting for. Mm-hmm. 
But I also buy tanned skins and mount some of my own stuff and, and sell those also. So those, so those are all, those, all tanned already sent to the tannery. They're in perfect condition, beautiful. I just, I just soak them and mount them. I'm trying to get a sense of how long a process this is. So, so let's imagine that I bring you a, a deer that I've shot and I want a, a trophy. How long is it going to take? What's the turnaround time? The turnaround time for me on a deer is about six to nine months, depending on the tannery. Sometimes the tanneries are all backed up, and it takes a little bit longer, but usually six to nine months. So what do you have to do? In other words, you have to somehow or other get the skin of the deer off the head some, uh, somehow, right? Yes, you have to skin it off the head, and then you have to flesh everything as well as you can. Uh, you have to split the lips, split the nose, split the ears, and then salt everything a few times before it gets to the tannery. It has to be completely dry before the tannery gets it, or else there's mold, mold involved, and it destroys the skin. You know, we've talked a little bit about who your clients are. Some of them are hunters. Some of them are people doing uh, retail displays. You've also done some work, I think, for, for movies. Do I have that right? I did. We did quite a few, actually. We've done horror films. We've done comedies. We've done television shows and sitcoms. Well, Glenn Barber, thank you so much for talking to us. Glenn Barber runs Outdoor Artistry, Taxidermy, and Bait in Winstead. Thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it, Colin. Thank you very much. All right, that's a voice from the front lines of taxidermy. Uh, you're hearing a little bit about that. But um, in some ways, we sort of leapfrogged over a couple of things that I want to go back to. Rachel, Rachel Poliquin uh, is with us. She's the author of The Breathless Zoo, Taxidermy and the Cultures of Longing. So, uh, Rachel, we talked about one moment that taxidermy had, and that was sort of the age of exploration, where suddenly uh, the old world was encountering all these new world animals and really one of the very few ways of introducing them as wonders, as curiosities, uh, as these miraculous beings that existed somewhere else was to preserve them through taxidermy, bring them back uh, to the old world. But another big moment for some reason or other, was the Victorian period. So a few hundred years later, the Victorians really get into this. And, and what is, is it their sentimentality? Is it their voracious collecting of everything, including uh, taxidermied creatures? What, what's, what's up with the Victorians and the taxidermy? Oh, I think, I think there's a, a couple reasons which really make it um, enabled them to have this explosion of taxidermy. And one was technical, one was scientific. It was the discovery of arsenic. And mm-hmm. through the 18th century, uh, people collected animals, but inevitably the insects and the bugs and the mold would eventually just destroy all collections. And you always hear these laments uh, from 18th century collectors saying, yet another bird of paradise has been destroyed. But towards the end of the 18th century, uh, a Frenchman discovered arsenic. Uh, if you soaked your skins in arsenic, no bugs ever came near your, your bird or your beast. And it became popularized at the beginning of the 19th century. So suddenly you get the ability to have an enormous number of creatures together in one space and not be too afeard that they were just going to dissolve and disappear. And then, of course, you just get their mass. Um, I mean, it was the age of empire. Everyone was traveling. And, it, and everyone was interested in how to order the natural world. So now you actually can bring home um, this, this archive of nature. And it just became a mad passion throughout all of society, whether you were a workman or whether you were um, a lord. Everyone became obsessed with creating these spectacles of nature in their own home. A couple of follow-ups there. First of all, um, you know, we know that uh, mercury did bad things to hatters. Uh, were, was arsenic in any way kind of an occupational hazard for the taxidermist? 
I think it was. Uh, definitely it was. Um, and I know a lot of modern collections, I've, I've worked with a lot of modern con- collections that do have some animals with, with taxidermy. That I think arsenic sort of um, was finally outlawed, and Robert may know more about this than me, around the 1950s, or it stopped being used around the 1950s, I guess, when the, the health risks um, were apparent. But um, I have certainly haven't come across any, any declared... Um, Worries. I guess towards the end of the 19th century, a lot of the big taxidermists who are doing a lot of animals for the natural history museums, which started the public natural history museums, which started, you start to hear a lot of worries about uh, arsenic and, and their skin. And then, um, and then it just kind of disappeared around the 1950s. Um, you know, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is, so we can understand uh, why, uh, particularly in the time of exploration, there would be a desire to see a lemur or maybe two lemurs. Um, there seems to be something else going on with these Victorians. And one of the more arresting images from your book, and one that you spend uh, quite a bit of time talking about too, is this display case on which there sits a many-limbed and many-twigged tree. And on all those branches and twigs and limbs are hummingbirds, but not two hummingbirds and not four hummingbirds and not even 20 hummingbirds. There's more than that. There's a profusion of hummingbirds. Yes. So yeah. mere curiosity about what a hummingbird bird looks like was not the reason for this particular display. So what's going on in that that startling and somewhat depressing <laughs> scenario, although probably not depressing to a Victorian who looked at it? Oh, they just they just loved nature to death. They just they just <laughs> couldn't get enough. They were it was a complete obsession. And I think the hummingbirds is is a particularly I don't know. It's a, a p- particularly pathetic example, if that's the right word, mm. of this loving nature to death where hummingbirds are uh, an American species. So for Victorians to actually see a hummingbird alive meant to travel. And so this animal, which is the the embodiment of movement and liveliness and the fact what Victorians loved about them was uh, their their metallic shimmer that they had, but of course that metallic shimmer and the changing of colors only happens when the hummingbird is alive and in motion, and so in a way to kind of counteract death, or they just decided that they would collect as many as possible and put them all in the various positions, so that in one glance you would still be able to see all the different shimmers of color, um, because all the various birds were in the, the different positions, but it is a. Uh, it is an extraordinary cabinet, which is still on display at the Natural History Museum in London, um, kind of as a as a relic of past wrongs. All right. So we have a call from Catherine in Rocky Hill. Uh, I'm sure she wants to talk to Robert Marbury because uh, he is the co-founder of the Minnesota Association of Rogue Taxidermists. And her story uh, harks back to her days in Minnesota, which apparently is, you know, to, uh, to you know, taxidermy, what Florence is to fountains. Uh, here's uh, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Hi. So I just wanted to, this sto- uh, conversation reminded me of being in high school where we had a class where there was a component of it was to learn some taxidermy. And so in our town, there were a number of taxidermy ducks that sort of looked like roadkill. And they would be, you would, like, people would have them. They'd be sort of like a joke item, mm-hmm. you know, because they just look so bad. So I think that would probably be an early example of rogue taxidermy. Well, no, that's not, Robert, I don't think you would call that rogue taxidermy, but there's a whole meme these days of bad taxidermy, right? Yeah, there's a, there's a you know, crappy taxidermy, and there's botched. One of the great terms is botched taxidermy, which a, a, a um, theorist named um, Steve Baker 
has created, which the idea, you know, it's it's not been done properly, and so it has a has a a weird quality to it that we actually are um, drawn to as well, even though it's totally off and completely weird. Um, I, I, I've always loved that about Minnesota, where you, in other states, I, I grew up in Maryland, and you'd have, uh, you know, home ec maybe and shop. But a lot of my friends in Minnesota, they all would have taxidermy instead of, you know, it's like home ec or taxidermy. And it's a, <laughs> kind of a no-brainer that these guys would go towards that. Yeah, I think that's one of the really hotly debated uh, issues in Common Core right now is should there be a taxidermy requirement in the public schools? Exactly. All right, we're going to grab a quick break break here. Uh, Rachel is with us for the duration, as is Robert. When we come back, Robert Marbury is going to in- introduce us to true rogue taxidermy. You'll also meet James Prosek. Uh, he's somebody doing what Robert would call, anyway, rogue taxidermy. All right, so we're talking about taxidermy. We do want to hear from you. I mean, we heard from Catherine, and that was great. I didn't realize about taxidermy in the Minnesota public schools, which is just so Cohen Brothers, so Fargo. Uh, but uh, we also want to hear from you. I really am dying to. There's got to be somebody out there who had a pet preserved, and that's what we. Re- I really want to hear if you if you had Puff or Rover uh, taxidermically preserved. But, I mean, you can call up about anything you want. I just have a Jones for that. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Our guests are Rachel Poliquin. Her book is The Breathless Zoo, Taxidermy and the Cultures of Longing. You can see more of her work at ravishingbeasts.com. Robert Marbury is with us. His upcoming book is Taxidermy Art, A Rogue's Guide to the Work, the Culture, and How to Do It Yourself. Rachel, before we get to Robert on this, uh, I think a natural lead in here is the fact that uh, in your your book, you explore all kinds of motivations for taxidermy, all kinds of uh, different, even kinds of longings uh, that are exhibited and reflected within taxidermy. But um, obviously, you know, we talked a little bit uh, in the first segment about taxidermy's role in representing nature as it is, anyway, as best as it can to recreate the form of an animal that had once lived. Um, but another role that it plays is uh, recreating animals who were real but not really representative of, the, of their species, right? One of the things that gets taxidermied a lot, and we have this in Hartford at the old state house. There's a museum of curiosities, and so you have like a fetal two-headed calf or something. That, that, that That's another thing that gets preserved, right? The thing that isn't the way it's supposed to be because it has two heads or it's albino. Well, exactly. And I think that goes back to my earlier comment about the cultures of wonder. The only way that we can really access that sense of amazement when you've just stepped off a a ship in a new world and seen this crazy creature is to see a preserved calf with two heads or a a cat with eight legs. It's just the most uh, shocking and disturbing and mesmerizing encounter with nature that you can probably have. Now, Robert Barbary, one way of looking at all this is why wait for nature to make an eight-legged cat? Why wait for nature to make a two-headed calf when, of course, there's a lot of things that one could do oneself? Um, so that, that kind of, I think, segues neatly into rogue taxidermy. Explain, first of all, what that term even means. Sure, sure. Um, so, first of all, rogue taxidermy came about uh, with a uh, group of three of us in Minnesota. We were having a, an art show. 
and um, it's really expanded and grown. And so everybody that's gotten involved, and you know, even books like Rachel's book have influenced this through through the last ten years it's been together. But Rogue Taxonomy, we're defining as a genre of pop surrealist art. And it's characterized by mixed media sculptures that contain traditional taxonomy materials used in unconventional manners. So, basically, any artwork, um, not any artwork, but artwork that uses taxonomy materials, which could be forms, which could be eyes, which could be skin, which could be bones, which could be uh, any sort of bio art piece, but used in a way to create a narrative, to create a. a um, um, an extension, uh, you know, a secondary meaning to the animal. So you, you said, you know, why wait for nature to to create a two-headed or four um, four-headed animal? Uh, there, there are examples of these gaffes and these collections that definitely influences influences our mind and creates a, a fantasy. And um, Borges's uh, bestiary did that, and Pliny's, um, you know, collection of, of oddities you also you influenced us into um, wanting to see these things and create art out of them and um, I think that that's really where a lot of the impulse comes from is is to to create something that you want to see um, and that, that can really range that can range from something as simple as um, a sort of Walter Potter inspired anthropomorphic animal that's playing a banjo and riding in a, uh, a canoe to uh, you know two squirrel Two squirrels bound at the hips fighting over an acorn. Right. And um, these anthropomorphic animals, I mean, just to emphasize this, and they are also mentioned in Rachel's book. So we're, you're, you're actually talking about a real animal. In other words, you take a fox or, or something and you, you you taxidermically preserve it, but you twist its you know body around or uh, you get it to assume a position that it wouldn't assume in, in the wild. And, and maybe it's wearing... Uh, an old antique laced dress and sitting on a swing or, as you say, playing a banjo, right? Correct. correct. One other extension for Rogue Taxidermy is we've opened it up um, a little bit, so some of the work is not actually true taxidermy. So if you're working with bones, like the artist Jessica Jocelyn, who's in Chicago, and she works with bones and not with skin, um, she's technically not doing taxidermy, but it fits within what we are trying to sort of look at as as a bio-art form. Um, and uh, I do sort of fake taxidermy traditionally, um, and I use uh, recycled materials or recycled bamboo materials, in fact, to take stuffed animals. But I'm utilizing the history of taxidermy to create animals that are fantastical, but at the same time, um, realistic visually. So this is your so-called vegan taxidermy, right? This is yeah, like... vegan taxidermy. And I've, you know, since, since uh, in the last 10 years, I've learned to do taxidermy. I'm not, you know... I, I need a lot more practice, but um, I've, I've tried to learn a lot of the different techniques so that when I speak about it, I understand you know, that when I'm working with wood wool versus wood chips versus um, a pre-made form, um, I've had to do brain tanning uh, or haven't had to. Okay, I've, I think I've, you better see what brain tanning is. Yeah. So, so um, there's a traditional way of tanning skins, which most people don't use because it takes a lot of time, but basically you use the brain of the animal, and then uh, in the combination of the brain and uh, smoke, it tans the skin. It's a lot easier to send skins out to a tannery, mm-hmm. um, and, and also for these classes that are, are around um, the country, uh, most of those time they're not tanning the skin at all. They're doing a dry preserve, so it's basically um, 
uh, they're using an insecticide. So, uh, but I just want to go back to what you were saying before. So, in other words, the notion is that I'm getting some help uh, on this from from sure. uh, Kion Wolf that the brain of the animal has the right amount of oil to tan the skin of the animal. Correct. Yeah. This is like Correct. some kind of weird perfection of nature that it just works out that way. Yeah, and I, I love that when you talk talk brain tanning with people, they always say, and it's fascinating that. Uh, every animal has enough brain in it to texture its own skin. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also use acorns, and you can also use egg yolks, mm-hmm. or you can go to the. Some people even just go to the butcher store and and purchase uh, um, brains that way. All right. Well, this it, whole it, conversation is making me very lightheaded, which usually happens with shows that, Betsy, that Betsy Kaplan produces, <laughs> not Kion Wolf. But um, so that I can just put my head between my knees, we're going to play a recording that we had with one of Robert Marlborough's proteges. I, I think Robert has mentioned a few times during this interview. Uh, so. Let's uh, go right ahead with, oh, we were going to take Mike first. Should I take Mike? No, keep going. I'm getting the sign to keep going. Uh, All right, so let's go ahead with that interview. James Prosek is a Connecticut-based artist. Uh, His exhibit, Wondrous Strange, is currently on view at the New Britain Museum of American Art. runs through uh, June 8th. This exhibit actually includes some taxidermy, but also some other kinds of uh, art, but not regular taxidermy. Uh, James Prosek is with us now. So this is taxidermy in which you experiment with various kinds of hybridized forms? Yeah. My friend uh, Robert Marbury, who's writing a book about artists who use taxidermy in their work, would call this rogue taxidermy. (laughs) But uh, in my work, I, I like to manipulate nature because I feel that all interpretations of nature by artists are at the crossroads of real and imagined. So I'm interested in to what extent how we process nature is real and to what extent it's injections of our imagination. So I've been painting these hybrid creatures for about 10 years at least. And at a certain point, I started making taxidermy versions of them, foxes with wings and and sometimes uh, animals with tool appendages, and they have different conceptual sort of ideas behind them. I want to talk about those ideas, but yeah, just to be, give people an idea, you've got a beaver with a chainsaw a tail, you've got uh, <laughs> a bird with a drill for a beak, you've got other kinds, as you say, birds that have kind of tools on them. I mean, obviously, there's sort of a fanciful tradition of all this, and I don't know, the tigress and Euphrates of misfit or rogue taxidermy might be the jackalope, you know, which <laughs> maybe yeah. started all this stuff. But you're not just doing this for fanciful reasons, right? There's some kind of social or political commentary underlying this. Yeah, there is. I mean, I... What I want the viewer encountering these two experience is to see uh, a display of an animal with some flowers made of clay that I make usually this little scene under a vitrine, and I want people to be inquisitive and look at them, but then there's always something kind of a little off about <laughs> the assemblage, and a lot of the themes in my work have to do with how we name and order the natural world, how we take possession through naming of nature. It's Adam's first task by God in the Garden of Eden is to name all the things in the garden. It's it's a way of coming to know the world. And the first hybrids I did uh, were creatures that had become their names almost in protest of us trying to make sense of them through language. So turtle doves and parrotfish and literal interpretations of what their names were. And then I started doing these tool creatures, paintings, and taxidermy versions of creatures that have different tools coming off of them. (laughs) And that was sort of a commentary on our conservation practices, that we we tend to protect things in nature that we either find adorable or we fall in love with for some reason, or 
things that are useful to us. So these creatures evolved to be useful so that we would protect them. So the, the beaver, the tail was just crying out to have a chainsaw chain around it because it's just the perfect form. And so he's chopping wood with his teeth and his tail simultaneously. That piece is called industrial evolution. And um, there's a piece with a duck with a drill bit, and he's making holes in the wood. So, you know, these, these creatures, again, evolved to help us so that we would protect them. So it's potentially a, a real scenario that would take thousands of years to happen, but <laughs> it is, though, kind of a political commentary. Did you or have to a commentary on our relationship to nature? And did you have to learn taxidermy to do this? In other words, if you're working with a duck or a beaver or a fox, does somebody else do the initial taxidermy on this, and then you do the modifications, or or do yeah, you? Yeah. Well, my my taxidermy skills are fairly rudimentary. I learned how to skin and prepare specimens so that I could go on a biological expedition. When birds are prepared for museum collections, they skin the bird and then stuff it with cotton with the wings folded and the eyes are cotton. So they're just very compact and they can be put in rows and drawers. So that's that's the kind of skinning and preparing that I'm most adept at. And I, I wanted to go on a biological expedition for as part of my inquiry into how we name things. And so I went with the Peabody Museum at Yale to South America to collect birds. And, um, you know, in order to name a new species, you have to take its life. So that's part of the process. It's one that one can be critical of, but in order to do science, unfortunately, it's part of the business. So that's another aspect to having the specimen, uh, like the beaver with the chainsaw. It's, it's almost like proof that the thing exists. So I, I'm not a very great taxidermist. I had help with the mammals from a friend of mine who's a taxidermist in Middlebury, Connecticut. He'll skin the animal and send it off to be tanned, and then, you know, usually I do a drawing first, and, and we kind of collaborate on putting the thing together. We're talking to artist James Prosek. Do you, have you encountered so far taxidermy purists or fundamentalists who look at your work and say, abomination? Uh, <laughs> I haven't yet because I haven't really exhibited it in places where it would get that kind of criticism like a a national competition for taxidermists. But, you know, I think if I explained why I was doing it, they might be okay with it. Or It depends on the person. I I did um, talk to another guy in Moosup, Connecticut, who's a really great bird taxidermist. His wife does mammals. You know, I asked him if if she could help me with these flying squirrels, and he said, no, she won't. She won't manipulate them. So she's a purist in that way. She she won't engage in any kind of what she might see as frivolous taxidermy. Some people take their craft seriously in the way that they want to make literal, as literal to nature depictions as they can of a dead thing. Well, you but, know, I think also um, in each case, as we talk to taxidermists, I think we probably find that, that a lot of them have some real reverence towards the animal in very much the way that you were describing it before, that, you know, you go to South America with the Peabody Museum and, you know, in order to name a species, to understand a species, you have to kill a species, you have to yeah. kill one represent, representation of it. But that has to happen, and maybe reverence is too loaded a word, but with some kind of veneration uh, yeah. and understanding of the animal, right? Well, there's no way to know a creature better than to take it apart. I mean, when you skin a bird, you make an incision along the breast, and then you basically turn the entire creature inside out over the top of the head. And it's it's a remarkable thing to witness. 
and you learn so much about the creature. Even if you're squeamish with blood and guts and stuff, you you just can't help but be fascinated by the mechanics of a creature. And I, I think taking a creature apart really adds to your appreciation of how beautiful and intricate uh, nature is in the way that a probably auto mechanic has a much greater appreciation of how a car runs. I have no idea how to take a car apart, but I can only imagine, you know, the best mechanics can fix just about anything. <laughs> so, yeah, I do I do think that being a taxidermist or having even attempted to take an animal apart and put it back together so that it resembles something lifelike, it really does give you an appreciation of the, the underbelly of nature, like what's going on, and you can only just look at this massive stuff and be in complete awe of how it all functions. Like the first time I skinned a woodpecker, it was a red-bellied woodpecker, a local woodpecker, and the, the tongue of the woodpecker goes through the back of the head, up around the top of the skull to the forehead, and it shoots out and it can be retracted again, so it can shoot this, this barbed tongue into uh, underneath the bark to stab grubs and you're like, how the hell did that evolve? It's crazy. This tongue that wraps around the top of the head, and <laughs> it's like spring-loaded. It's, it's wacky. But when I first saw it, I was like, what the hell is this? Because every bird is different when you take it apart. Ducks have really big heads, so you can't pull the whole thing inside out, so you have to make another incision in the back of the head to take the head out. So there's challenges with, with each animal that are different. But I've found that it's added a whole other dimension to the way I look at nature since I've first tried doing it. Hey, just before we run out of time here, James, um, oh, I, I want to also give you an opportunity to uh, make out a, a living will right here. So uh, if we were to create a document that said, I, James Prosak, when I'm, Prosak, when I'm no longer you know, of this earth, uh, want to be taxidermied. I want to be stuffed and mounted with the following modification. You know, and you can now, so you now you can ask for a rotor or oh. wings or some kangaroo legs or a duck bill or, so what well, do you off want? The, off the top of my head. As it were. I think, uh, yeah, I think I would like to be cremated, mm. but when I was, I was on a trip to this Buddhist uh, kingdom in Nepal called Mustang, when the king of Mustang had an architect build a house that he liked or a building, they would cut the hand off the architect and hang it in the building so they could never make another building as nice again <laughs> for somebody else. So maybe I, maybe my left hand could be embalmed and hung somewhere, but the rest of me I, I wouldn't mind uh, being cremated or and tossed into the sea or a trout stream somewhere. But, yeah, as far as being skinned, and ooh, that would be weird. <laughs> All right. Well, as they say, it's your funeral. Uh, James Prosek, <laughs> uh, a Connecticut-based artist. His exhibit, Wondrous Strange, currently on view at New Britain Museum of American Art. will be up until June 8th. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. We have no living interns today, but when you visit the Dankowski Building, be sure to stop by our intern diorama, where former interns Jules Lefebvre, Emily Boucher, and Skylar Magnoli are preserved in their natural intern habitat. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Anthony Perkins. 
for show pages, articles, and Faith Middleton Show staff recipes for medallions of unicorn, visit WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, we explore de-extinction. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, actually, we're trying to do three linked shows this week, which we've never done before. This is the first of them. Uh, the link that gets you to tomorrow's show is that, uh, for example, in Rachel Poliquin's book, she mentions that Martha, the last ever passenger pigeon, uh, was taxidermically preserved. Well, what if we could make a new passenger pigeon? Uh, that's the whole question of tomorrow's show. What happens when we're able to bring something out of extinction, uh, but sometimes into a habitat that no longer corresponds to the habitat it especially if it's a woolly mammoth and not a passenger pigeon, lived in. What could go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? Uh, and then uh, all of that kind of, lead, kind of leads us towards climate change. That'll be um, We're doing conjoined episodes uh, with the big kids on where we live on Thursday. Ours will focus on local meteorologists, the people who actually you actually get your weather from these people. Do they understand, believe, accept climate change? So that's all to come. Uh, speaking of conjoined, if you want to see some of the art that Robert Marbury has talked about or that James Prosek has talked about, uh, our tweet master, Greg Hill, is tweeting that uh, links out. You can see the conjoined squirrels fighting over the nut. Just, just go to WNPR Colin on Twitter, and he'll take you right to the uh, to the links for some of the sites that, that has all that kind of stuff. Let me grab a quick call from Mike, and then I've got some uh, wrap-up questions here for uh, Rachel and for Robert. Uh, here, here's Mike in Glastonbury. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Say, uh, while working for the pharmaceutical industry many years ago, I had visited a company that manufactures freeze dryers. And they were using the freeze-dried process to preserve the animals without having to do any type of taxidermy uh, to it. And if you're not familiar with freeze-drying, is what it does is you freeze the water that's within, whether it's a liquid or, in this case, it, it's the animal. And then the water sublimes under pressure. It, it goes directly from the ice phase to the gas phase, completely dehydrating the animal. So, yeah, and Folger's crystals. Uh, oh, we know all about the freeze-drying process. Um, Rachel, actually, this is something you kind of address in the book, right, that there are a lot of things, uh, other kinds of dehydration, you mentioned in particular, that are sort of taxidermy but not really taxidermy, right? Yeah, freeze-drying actually... Um why a lot of pet owners choose that as opposed to the traditional taxidermy is your entire animal is still there. So whereas taxidermy, you have to have your beloved Nuffy uh, skinned, here Nuffy stays as uh, the only thing that's added is some glass eyes at the end, but the entire creature um, is is there still. Uh, and I think a lot of pet owners and bereft pet owners are, are somewhat um, grossed out by the concept of having to have their animals skinned after it's dead. And they can actually choose the pose in which that animal um, will be. So um, a lot of pet owners find it gives them, gives them that little, little added connection to their animal. Of course, the other reaction, and we're, this is sort of, we're going to have to end on this note, but we've got a few minutes to talk about it. The other re- reaction can be uh, summed up in a tweet we just got from Pamela, who grew up with a friend whose dad was a taxidermist. And Pamela always turned down invites for an overnight too creepy. So, um, Robert Mar- Marbury, I'll start with you. Taxidermy, yeah. even regular taxidermy, before we start putting drill bits on uh, the heads of, of uh, plovers, just regular taxidermy takes us right into the uncanny valley, right? Time has sure. stopped. There's just something weird about all this. Maybe you could just sort of say something anyway about, well, the uncanniness of taxidermy. Yeah. I mean, I think that the idea that it's, it is something and it's, and it's not, um, it both uh, frightens us and, and, it, and attracts us. Um, you know, 
going back to the pet um, preservation, you know, this I had a friend who had a, a piece that was taxidermied, and um, she and actually it re- refers to a cartoon that Rachel's found uh, from Punch magazine back in the day, where it shows the the animal slowly kind of falling apart again. And so she's preserved this animal, but then the bugs get to it, mm-hmm. and now she's got she keeps it in her uh, her freezer, um, because that's the only way to keep it from getting eaten. And so she's got this object that is her pet. It isn't her pet. It sort of looks like her pet, but maybe it holds attention a little different. And and the idea of the uncanny valley or the uncanny is something that is very very close to us or very very close to normal, but just not. Mm. And and that sort of balancing act, I think, is what keeps people coming back for more. Um, Rachel, you get emails from people who actually have almost a phobia of taxidermy. Do, do we understand, is it all summed up in what, what Robert said, or, or is there another way to think about that? Oh, I, th- I think he put that really well. I think taxidermy just balances along the line of, uh, I mean, it, it is still the animal, but yet it is nothing like the animal anymore. And there's there's this visceral shock that you get when you encounter a piece of taxidermy. And one of the biggest misconceptions people have about me is that everyone thinks I am a taxidermist. And, part, and I am definitely not. I have never engaged in it at all. And my project really came about because, as Robert said, you're uh, there's it's, there's something fearful or squeamish or scary about it, but yet it still has this magnetic hold over you, and so that was part of part of my project was just to figure out what that magnetic hold really is. And it turns out to be seven kinds of longing, at least seven kinds of longing. So, yeah. Rachel Bollock, when they have to read the book to find out what the seven kinds of longing are, they'll find out so much more. It really is uh, as enchanting and as uncanny as taxidermy itself. It's called the Breathless Zoo: Taxidermy and the Cultures of Longing. And as soon as you finish that, you can pre-order Robert Marbury's book, Taxidermy Art: A Rogue's Guide to the Work, the Culture, and and How to Do It Yourself. We'll be back tomorrow with the extinction. Betsy Kaplan is going to show you how to get a woolly mammoth for a pet in your own hopefully very large backyard dr wolf my cat is really sick i hope you can help well i'll do everything i can but you know my slogan kion wolf veterinary medicine and taxidermy either way you get your pet back